Welcome to our podcast, We're Not So Different. I'm Samira. And I'm Ali. We're two professionals having real conversations about our experiences at home, work, and out in the community. We tell our stories through the lens of our different backgrounds to just find out that we're not so different. In our podcast, we'll explore ways that we can improve engagement and bridge social gaps while trying to find the humor in it all. Check us out on social media at WNSDifferent or email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of We're Not So Different. I'm Ali, here with my co-host, Samira, and this month is May Mental Health Month. And as part of celebrating Mental Health Month, we have brought on a special guest. Today, our special guest is Carmel Ellison. She's a licensed psychotherapist and specializes in working with women of color who are high achieving. For this particular interview, we really want to highlight the importance of mental health, not just for the month of May, but for the entire year. And part of why we brought Ms. Carmel on is because we wanted to understand how mental health is impacting those high-performing, high-achieving, high-powerful women that are in corporate America, academia, and other places, and how we really need to take a better focus on our mental health and how that impacts our lives, our relationships, our families, and others. With that, I will hand it to you, Carmel, to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes. Thank you so much, Ali and Samara, for having me on your podcast. I feel really honored to be a part of this. I feel really passionate about this subject, so I'm glad that I get to be here, that I get to join your voices, and that I get to speak to everyone who's listening. So as Ali described, I am a licensed psychotherapist. I'm Carmel Ellison. I have an office in downtown Berkeley. Yet during this pandemic, I am working um, primarily online with clients. So we're doing online video sessions as well as phone sessions. And I am specifically passionate about communicating the impact of mental health, especially complex relational trauma and women of color um, who are high achieving. Because oftentimes in order to outrun the impact of complex relational trauma in their nervous system, they seek to be excessively productive. And oftentimes through that productivity, they eventually hit a wall, a wall where lots of suppressed emotions, um, lots of relational issues, whether it be with friends, whether it be with colleagues, whether it be with family show up. And so I'm really glad that I get to be here. I'm really passionate about this because oftentimes I think, especially for women of color, They don't usually feel like there's a place for them to process all of these experiences without having to be a caretaker. And so I'm glad that we get to put a voice to this. And um, I'm really interested in in sharing with um, women of color and also other um, individuals as well who also experience, you know, excessive productivity and past experiences of relational trauma. I'm really interested to share a little bit about what might be going on in their nervous system and the path of of just going towards towards healing. That's wonderful. It's interesting to me that you're relating high productivity to past emotional trauma. Can you Tell us a little bit more about that and also what has what drew you to advocating for women of color specifically in this area? Yeah, absolutely. 
I think that, you know, in my years of working in different settings, this has been a constant like presentation that has shown up. And I think in my own background as well, growing up, um, especially being a woman of color and not just a woman of color, but of Afro-Caribbean descent, I um, have definitely experienced the, I guess you can say, constant encouragement to, to be productive, but not constant encouragement to kind of take a pause and attune to my emotions, attune to my body, and also attune to my soul, what might be happening. I think there's this idea that productivity solves all. But what people notice is that, you know, even when they start checking off the boxes of things that they've wanted to achieve and what the good life looks like, they eventually get there and they recognize that something's missing. I'm not feeling fulfilled. I'm not doing better in relationships, et cetera. So I'm really glad that we get to take a look at this a little bit more. How did you get involved in psychotherapy and what was the road or the journey that you took that brought you here? And then I want you to jump into kind of like the, because the relational trauma seems to be like the big umbrella. And I wanted you to describe what that means to our listeners exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So when I look back, it is inevitable. I feel like I would become a therapist because I find that, you know, I've always been an inner and outer explorer. Like I, um, Thinking back to when I was younger, I was always really curious about what was going on inside of me. I was also really curious about how I noticed people engaging in the world and even how I engaged in the world. I was really curious about behaviors, dimensions of behaviors. And I guess you could probably even say like when younger, you are around the people that you love and you wonder, you know, what makes us interact the way that we do? What um, brings this person like joy or what brings this person um, sadness or what makes this person stuck the way that they are? And also turning it back to yourself. So I would ask myself, you know, what makes me like feel stuck right now, etc. I also noticed that I would just randomly have people come up to me and, and talk to me and just share any and everything they were vulnerable. And that always surprised me because even though I feel like I am likable, I, I've never really considered myself to be so social that people would come up to me and, and share as much as they do. And so I joke around at times um, with family and with friends. And I say that, you know, that saying, don't talk to strangers when you're younger, it never really applied to me because I would often have people just randomly come up and, and talk to me. I just noticed that I was inclined to listen, um, to really attune to like their vulnerability. And I noticed what an impact it had on them and also the impact that it had on me as well, being open to their experiences, their stories. It really led to me doing the work that I've been doing in, in different spaces. I'm in private practice now, but I've worn different hats in different settings. And what has been constant is the power of like storytelling, how people hold their stories, the perceptions that they have, even how their stories impact their body and their nervous system, what tends to keep them stuck. And this has also helped me to kind of have that awareness and to be open to these stories and to even challenge my own stories. This is what brought me into it. Let's circle back to uh, the relational trauma piece of it and just provide us kind of a better understanding of what that means maybe with an, with an example, because it's definitely the first time that I'm, I'm hearing about that. Yeah. So for relational trauma, I usually define it as any experience in which a person's emotional and physiological needs are either dismissed, minimized, or even overlooked. 
And so there are examples that you can think of when um, a person has had um, relational trauma and maybe they haven't known it, or maybe they've minimized that it was a big deal until it starts showing up in um, present day um, life and functioning. So examples that I could give is, I think we've heard this a lot where people growing up are told, take emotions out of this. Just focus on on doing what you need to do. Um, Focus on your education. There's no room for this. Or you've probably heard people say that, you know, it was okay to express anger in their household, but the moment that they shared any sadness or um, any excessive joy, they were told to kind of taper it down, et cetera. Another example that I can think of that's really common is that people growing up were highly, I think, um, attuned to what you know, maybe their their care, caregivers wanted, or maybe someone who was really important to them. And they felt like in order to keep connection, they really had to focus on what the other person wanted. And that took away from them focusing or even attuning to what they want or what they need. So they really learned to suppress their needs and to just focus on who they were connected to. When you're talking to folks about relational trauma, and it, I mean, it sounds like something that I've definitely heard, you know, in and around my own folks, um, at home or outside where, you, where you're, you're kind of told to put yourself and how you feel in the back burner. The, the segue for that, how, how does one segue that into the productivity conversation where, where it's, it's seen as though what you produce is in whole what your value is as opposed to who you are as a person? Um, how, how does one go from hearing those things maybe when they're younger or, or maybe in, in their early college life or early career and then to being someone who, who's, you know, powerful in their own industry or high up in their own industry and then still hanging on to those sorts of things? I think it um, it definitely has an impact on your, your body. I, I like to say that even before we hear an experience or a story or we have an encounter, our, our bodies are like encoding whatever it is that's happening. It, it knows whether we feel safe, um, whether we feel unsafe, whether we feel rejected. It's how people can, even before they hear words from another person, they get a glimpse of a, a facial expression. They get a, um, a sense of a tone and that automatically does something to their bodies. And so our bodies have a way of encoding whatever it is our experience is, even before it fully plays out. And so a lot of times, even for people who are high achieving and who are able to reason their way through many different life experiences, they find it difficult to reason out of productivity because it's an experience of their body and their nervous system. And it also means tapping into their emotions. And if they've often been told to tuck away their emotions, well, they're used to doing that. So it's really hard to access their emotions. Accessing their emotions don't feel safe. They try and, and hold on to the reasoning because when they were reasoning, that's when they saw that they received praise or that things seemed okay or that they weren't in trouble, etc. Even when they continue to achieve, they find themselves in a position where in order to feel like they have a safety net, in order for them to feel like things are predictable, then they do the one thing that they know will bring them predictable outcomes. I know that if I do this, then I know that I'll have this particular outcome. And so they hold on to that. So one of the one of the terms that I, I saw in in some of the literature that you provided was uh, one about misattunement, mm-hmm. um, and with that, 
what I wanted to tie in is since you work with women of color, there is a saying that we've always had, specifically in the African-American community, is you have to work twice as hard in order to in in order to be successful or be be dubbed as successful um or you have to work twice as hard just to keep the same job as someone else and there's also that pressure of when we are in an environment where there are just a sparse few of us and this goes for other groups of color as well that you somehow are rep- are the representative mm-hmm. of your entire group right and there's that additional pressure of if i fail then this will not only impact me, but it will impact anyone that looks like me because they'll say, hey, I hired Ali and he couldn't do this job. So I probably won't hire another black guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Which it's what happens in in some cases. Do the people do the clients that you work with, br- do they bring these sorts of things up and what other source of pressures or, or mental angst uh, do they bring up in these conversations with you? Yeah. specifically related to misattunement, to pressures, to things that are not just productivity based, but also that tie in, you know, tie in, you know, the, the, who they are as people, right? The color of their skin. Yeah, absolutely. And they do bring that issue up. And I think that's one of the biggest issues or expressions of misattunement in corporate America, this idea that, you know, if I am not holding up this representation of what it means to be a person of color, then this could possibly ruin things for anyone who comes um, after me. And I think that's a lot of pressure for us to bear, and especially in our nervous system. Even if we think we have it in our minds that we can do this, you know, our body and our um, our nervous system, it's holding a lot of pressure. It's almost as if our body has a message that, you know, you just get one chance. And I want to be mindful that in certain circumstances, people have only gotten one chance. So I'm not overlooking that. But this is a constant message that might be playing in our in our nervous system that you only get one chance, that you don't have an opportunity to, to mess up, etc. And that typically causes people to feel like in order for them to to be all right, in order for them to be okay in this world, in order for them to have a stamp, then they have to really have a pride in their productivity. And what I notice is that it causes just a, a guilt in simply being. Um, this is something else that I notice for, for clients who are high achieving that when they're being productive, there's a sense of direction, there's a, a sense of feeling good. But when they're simply just being, if they're at home and they're off from work, Or if they're just, you know, like being in this pandemic and coping, if they are feeling exhausted, there's almost like there's a sense of guilt for being exhausted, for um, for taking it easy, for not doing what they typically classify as a lot or enough to get validation. Interesting. Yeah. You you talked about that feeling. I want to dive into that a little bit more, that feeling of saying if I'm just existing, I'm not doing enough because I'm not being productive or I'm not doing something uh, that that has a metric around it. What are some of the other symptoms that either people admit to having or the symptoms that you see that they have that you've had to point out to them to say, hey, this is a symptom of misattunement. This is a symptom of overproductivity or, 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 or being focused on productivity instead of mental wellness. Yeah. Well, the first one is, and I think you guys could notice this, that there's a a sense of anxiety, that if there's difficulty with 
just being and often having to do something, often outrunning something in their nervous system, then they're experiencing anxiety. And it can really vary from just anxiety disorder to what can also be generalized anxiety disorder, where they're anxious about everything and anything because they feel like, you know, they're constantly being looked at, that they're constantly in the purview of of being criticized or there's a risk of abandonment if they're not doing something correctly or or picking up on cues of, of colleagues, supervisors, um, friends, loved ones, such as family members. So there's an experience of anxiety. And I would also say that there is features of depression that show up when there is um, a long history of, of misattunement and also um, a history of trying to deal with that misattunement through productivity. And that typically comes up when, you know, they aren't doing anything and they start to experience that guilt. And from that guilt, they might notice that an inner critic shows up. And that's a part of self that really wants to make sure that, you know, that they're doing all that they can, that they're not falling behind. And yet that inner critic could be really harsh and it can tell them, you know, you're not good enough. Someone else is likely building this or doing this right now. Or you were this person, um, you wouldn't have missed that question. You wouldn't have forgotten, et cetera. And this can even play out in personal relationships too, where that inner critic shows up when a person feels like they don't know their role in their relationship or when they find that they're with an individual who is likely independent or um, has a, a good sense of self and what they need and what they want. And if this person um, doesn't feel like they're aware of what they can be doing or what they're allowed to do, they might start to, to go into their heads and, and disconnect from their bodies. It's clear that this is a big issue for, uh, definitely a big issue for people of color just in general, because I've, I've talked to folks in other areas. Samir and I have had a multitude of conversations between ourselves just about, you know, Persians and folks in the Middle East and, and Black folks here and just kind of this this idea that mental health and having to go see a shrink or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist or a therapist of any sort, I mean, even a physical therapist for that matter, we, we struggle with that. Um, and there are some misconceptions too that kind of guide that. And I think outside of maybe distrusting a, a certain arena or a, or a certain area of the healthcare industry, there still is the idea that you don't have a reason to be depressed as long as you have three meals a day and a roof over your head. There's nothing for you to be anxious about because you have a job to go to and you have a spouse or children. Only crazy people go to see therapists. What do you find are some of the common misconceptions that that you hear uh, related to psychotherapy specifically? And what are what are some of your combative thoughts around how to get people comfortable with the idea that, hey, this is just as as important as eating right or exercising or or what have you? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've listed some some great ones that typically keep um, folks from reaching out at times until they they feel like they've hit a wall. Um, some other common ones that I hear, especially from people who are high achieving, they feel like they should be able to figure this out. You know, they have great minds, and when they're focused, they're able to accomplish a lot. And so, um, similar to 
the experience of, of doing a lot with their hands, doing a lot with their minds, they feel like when it comes to their mental health, they should be able to figure it out. What I usually like to point out to them is, you know, in leadership, they're not the only ones figuring things out. They have a team, they consult with people, et cetera, so that they can have um, more of a, a wider view of what's actually happening and how to connect things to, to, to build, to have uh, execution of whatever it is that they are, are trying to, to market, et cetera. I find that when I kind of talk along the lines of whatever their field is, it makes more sense to them. They're able to connect to it and it doesn't feel like they are not good enough or that they have failed. They are more able to attune to it because I'm also attuning to where they are. And oftentimes when we hear, you know, you should be able to figure it out or that you really don't need therapy, et cetera, it's a misattunement. It's almost as if you are disregarding a person's emotional state, their um, their well-being. And so I even express that to them. I have them take a look at it. You know, a common saying that we've heard has been the expression of gaslighting, right? And so mm -hmm. that's also something that I bring up to them, that they are telling themselves that they're okay when they're not okay. And yeah. I even kind of show them signs, like this is what I'm noticing in your body right now that is telling me that there might be something going on. And then they give a voice to that. They're able to, to then go an extra mile and say, oh, yeah. I do notice this. This comes up a lot when I am anxious. This comes up a lot when I'm sad. And I have them float back to an earlier time where they might have felt that way before. And when they land on that, it makes sense to them why they've been kind of avoiding seeking help or seeking support. Other experiences that I can think of, you know, there's a, a sense of not wanting to be controlled. I think especially for people of color, when they've been in um, vulnerable states where they have sought for help, at times they haven't been met with, you know, cultural sensitivity and awareness. Even when they are showing up to, to see a therapist of color, there's a little bit of an ease, but there's still that sense of their nervous system being in fight or flight to, to make sure that they're not taken advantage of that they are still in control of their, their healing experience. And I use that too, that people who like to be in control, even though there's a lot that can't be controlled, I let them know that you know they are aware of the integrity of their healing process and I join them there. That it's not me that's forming this, this healing process for them, that I'm joining them and I'm helping them take a look at what they've likely have not been able to see or attuned to. One of the things that, that you mentioned, too, that I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit on is because it was, it was something that I heard for the first time. So it'd be interesting to hear you you explain it and talk about how you cope with it is is you talked about a term called somatic sensing. So can you explain that and talk to our listeners about what that means and, and some examples of that? Yeah. So somatic sensing, it's also called somatic experiencing as well. Our bodies, they... Um, they hold a lot of our experiences. They hold a lot that then informs how we, we carry ourselves in different spaces um, and even our nervous system. When I, I've mentioned fight or flight, there are different states in our nervous system that also impact our bodies. And so it's the, 
it's like the collective truth that not only are we doing the mental work, but we are getting connected to our, our bodies because our bodies are essential to our healing. There's no way that we can bypass doing work in our bodies. And I think that's why sometimes when we hear people working out, they feel really great. Well, it's a time where they're actually attuning to their body, the responses that are um, are being kind of unleashed when they are working out and they're feeling the endorphins, et cetera. And similar to that, like mental health, it's not just, you know, diving into your thoughts. It's also diving into the emotional experiences that have been trapped in your body. It's diving into even the traumatic experiences that are connected to the emotions that you have. Um, and sometimes we, we don't think that we have trauma. If we've had relatively uh, a good life, people can wonder, well, that doesn't seem like trauma, but I like to say that trauma isn't just the big experiences that we can think of, like abuses or horrific accidents, etc. Trauma can be everyday not experiences that we encounter when we perhaps have had someone overlook our feelings or perhaps have been dismissed or perhaps feel like, you know, we're, we're doing the best that we can and yet we still feel like we're not moving knots in our experiences can be traumatic when we feel like we're empty or we feel like we're sad and we're we're not given a uh, a sense of of place or, or belonging etc these are all knots that form in our bodies and so somatic sensing it really has um, individuals just really slow down to get attuned to their bodies not try and outrun the experiences that they're typically good at um, avoiding on day to day when they're able to be outside, when they're able to go from one place to the next, this really has them slow down, really connect to their breath, really connect to their heart, their, their stomach, their hands, their arms, etc., and really take a look at what parts of their body they feel connected to and also what parts of their body they feel disconnected from. Um, sometimes it can be as simple as me having someone just tap on the right side of their body, just continue to tap and they notice that they feel more present to the right side of their body than they have felt to both parts of their body prior to doing the tapping. We have different ways in which we can really disengage from our bodies without knowing it. And sometimes people who even feel like they're typically present when we're doing different um, somatic exercises, they notice how usually they're just kind of coasting. They, they come to a certain point where they engage with their bodies, but they stop. It's almost as if they have a line that they don't want to go over. And so mm. I get really curious about that line. When you talk about people that don't, when they reach that point of saying, here's my invisible barrier, my, my invisible wall, so to speak, what do you find is the, is the thing that creates or reinforces that wall? And then how do you push past that for folks that are, that are, that are listening, that are saying like, Hey, I, I'm, I'm picking up on everything that's being said here, but how do I, how do I make that, that step forward? How do I make that leap through past these obstacles and allow myself to, to be more mentally in tune and more emotionally tuned with myself. Yeah. I say that it can be as simple as just a gentle breath going in through your nose and even holding it for a few seconds, noticing how your body responds to just that brief moment of, of stillness and silence before you exhale out each and every moment when we're taking an inhale and right before we exhale, we experience our body and its capacity to open up as we inhale. We also experience a brief moment of stillness. And as we're deeply exhaling out, we're seeing our body's capacity to let go. 
And so I have people even do a practice like that as getting started, like taking a deep breath in or even taking a, a calming breath in and noticing what, you know, your body wants to open up to in the moment. And that can seem complicated, but I tell people to go with what's obvious for them. Taking a slow breath in, you might even recognize how your lungs are responding to that breath. I have people even notice if their lungs feel like it's a clear way for their breath to go in and out, or if their lungs feel maybe tight or constricted in some way. And especially for those who have relational trauma, most of the time they'll tell you that there's something going on with their throat, that they feel a little bit of a knot or they feel like there's a little bit of a blockage. And that makes sense because there's a lot that's been unsaid. And so I have mm. to engage your breath that way. And they start to notice things even in a matter of seconds, right? There's a lot that we can learn from our bodies. If we just even just go simply with breaths in, taking a pause and deeply exhaling out and seeing our body's capacity to, to really heal itself. If we give it a chance, if we give permission. So it, it sounds to me like mixed into not only the misattunement piece and the, the somatic sensing piece after you get, after you localize and find some of the issues or some of the barriers there, um, it sounds like in, ingrained in some of your practice, it sounds like our breathing techniques, meditation, what other sorts of things are kind of embedded in, in treatment. Now you don't have to give away any trade secrets, but um, how do you, how do you go about treating these sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. I think it it really depends on the person and their experiences. And I know you guys probably hear that a lot, but in really gauging what their experiences are, from there, there are a variety of things that we we can do. Obviously addressing through meditation and, and breathing, but also looking at different protective parts of, of themselves that have likely shown up with experiences of relational trauma or excessive productivity, there's usually a part that's holding these experiences. We all have protective parts. And common protective parts that I see are usually an inner critic. There is usually a compliant protector. And a compliant protector is a part of self that is likely to be um, consumed or over-concerned with the experiences of other people or their well-being and not put our own well-being first or not be as concerned with our own being because it really wants to stay in connection. It really wants to people please and caretake because it feels like that's the way to sustain connection. So you might see a compliant protector. Other protective parts that come up um, can be a somatic protector. And that's the part of self that can experience headaches. It can experience chest aches. It can experience different bodily experiences that that really show us that something's going on. So if people are typically trying to ignore things, you might've had an experience where you felt like something was going on with your shoulders. And you could probably trace back and know that, all right, this is not just my shoulder. This is kind of a buildup of things. And so we take a look at these protective parts or even an anxious protective part as well that really likes to anticipate things. Its goal is to, to be in the know, to not feel like there are any negative surprises. And I notice that there are a lot of people who are kind of coping with that protective part right now, that anxious protector, because this pandemic surprised us all. And this um, anxious protector is now trying to anticipate what else could possibly go wrong, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, yeah, I think that's a big one. There's, there's a lot of things that have, you know, that have come to light in the midst of the pandemic. Myself and Samira talk about this on, 
a regular basis between ourselves, between a lot of our friends or, you know, what are the impacts? What are some of the things that we're seeing out in the world as people start to deal with this, not just a change of scenery by working from home, but having to teach their children at home. Uh, And then you have a lot of situations where things may not necessarily have been the best at home. And this kind of brings things to the forefront a bit. And I know you specialize in dealing with black women, specifically high achieving, but for those of us who are not black or not women, what are some of the things that you would suggest that we do to help cope in an environment such as COVID, which, which may extend for, you know, who knows how long, as well as just making mental health more of a yearly focus as opposed to a monthly focus? Are there, are there some things that we should, we should focus on? Are there some things that we should think about, you know, even inclusive of, of going to see uh, a therapist ourselves? Yeah, I um, usually give people exploratory questions that they can, can ask themselves and just kind of sit and be with that and notice what what comes up from that experience. Like one of the questions that I ask that are pretty common can be, you know, how important is the truth in your life? How important do you want the truth to be in your life? And what is that truth? And that yeah. can be something that people sit with, like, what do you mean? What truth? It's, and they're looking to me to kind of give a clue on what the truth is. And this is an opportunity for them to attune to themselves. What is that truth for you? And how important is it for you to, to have it be in your life and to have it show up? And that starts to make them think about how they can have that truth be implemented in their life each and every day. And that's part of the way in which they start to be more attuned to not only um, their mental health, but holistic health in general. Because um, it, it, it's funny, because as you said that, I was sitting here thinking too, like, okay, truth, what does that mean for me? Um, do I really want the truth? Um, and I think that's, that's a, that's a great, I'm, I don't want to get, I don't want to have a therapy session now, but, but it, it has my brain working on what that means. Am I prepared for that? So one thing that Samir and I have, have talked a little bit about is when we think about our podcast and, and what we're, what we're trying to do, which is, which is very natural and very organic. Uh, we are trying to help break down the barriers that hold our collective peoples back. Mental health is definitely one of those things, um, along with healthcare um, and a few others. What are some of the things that we can do as individuals to encourage not just ourselves, but encourage other people in our communities to really take a look at their own mental health, to focus on it, to talk about it, to even have the dialogue to begin with, right? To say that this is okay and and I need someone to talk to outside of my grandmother or my aunt or someone close to me, but I may need to seek professional help to deal with some of the things that I know are present and also a lot of the things that I know lay dormant or unacknowledged or uh, you know yet to be uncovered. How do, how do we send that message out to people in our communities? Yeah. Well, I think you both are, are doing it right now, not just with um, this episode that I'm a part of, but just the podcast that you both have, the platform that you both have created that is prompting conversations that sometimes can be difficult, 
but are, are necessary and just the kind of awareness and, and sensitivity that you both are bringing to it. You know, I've listened to some of your podcasts and just the awareness that you have and also how you um, take accountability for speaking for yourself where you're not journalizing it. And I like that because it gives other people opportunities to feel like they um, have their voice and that they can show up and not be misattuned to because there's only one experience or there's one category. The other thing I would say is just taking a look at possible experiences that you both have had of misattunement and how that um, can sometimes show up. I think misattunement is, is something that's often overlooked, but there are or moments and times, I think we all can catch ourselves doing it. It can be as simple as someone saying, you know, I'm feeling this right now. And you saying, or um, me saying, or even Samira saying, no, you're not. And that's an, an experience of misattunement. And they can start to, to think, okay, maybe I'm not, right? And they start to, to be misaligned with what their, their souls, their body, um, or even their minds are, are telling them is actually happening. And so when you notice that someone's experiencing sadness, or you notice that, you know, they've been disheveled, or something's going on in a relationship, like attuning to that, like, hey, I noticed this has been coming up for you a lot. And just see what they say. They might say, oh, yeah, it has been coming up a lot. And that way you're attuning and you get to say, you know, I really think this person could be of help. And when you know how someone processes information, like when you know from your loved ones, certain things that set them off and certain things that they're open to, you can really use how they function and how they think to, to give them what they need. And that might be a, a recommendation, but you're you're going about it in a way in which you know that they can be open to, even if they're not specifically open to mental health at the time. Like, hey, I know that you've been having trouble with this right here, and I really think this could be helpful. And you're not doing it in a demeaning way. You're not doing it in a, a way in which they feel like there has to be shame that prompts up. You're doing it as casually as you would if you said, hey, do you want some popcorn? And it's just as simple as that. Can I ask a controversial question? Yeah. Okay. So growing up and Ali, you and I have talked about this, I think in like the first couple episodes, but growing up, I think the older generation does a really good job of dismissing, attuning our feelings and, you know, dismissing how we feel or what our needs are, you know, just, you mentioned it in your notes specifically, but, oh, you're not hungry. You don't even know what that means. Like, <laughs> or, <laughs> or I'll say, this is my, you know, not in my house, this is my house and my rules. So I don't really care what you say. So I feel like, you know, back in the day, older generations and even up to our generation, we did, we did experience that a lot. Like I remember my brother, anytime I got emotional, you know, my brother would be like, why are you crying? You're so dramatic. You're so blah. So it's like, I learned to grow up and not show emotion and to not cry. And that really impacted me. And it took a lot of work to kind of get over that. But then we have today's world and today's, you know, the way that we're raising children today, where I sometimes feel like we're almost overcompensating and acknowledging every feeling that they have. And it's almost to a point where in some situations it's almost overbearing and a bit of coddling yeah so and that impacts them growing up as well because if you in my opinion i'm not the professional here but in my opinion if you kind of coddle the kids too much 
then when they go out into the world and people aren't coddling them and teachers are like, you didn't do your assignment. It, it's not about feelings. Did you do it or not? You didn't. Okay. This is your grade then. Or, you know, you go to work and there's a deadline and you're like, well, I was feeling like this. And your boss is like, I don't care how you were feeling. <laughs> how do we reconcile those two um, like extremes? Yeah. And I think you're defining it, Samira, that both are extremes, right? You're either dismissive or you are excessively available, right? And I think that there is a, a difference. There's a way to attune without falling on either end of the scale. And when I think about attunement, I think about, you know, really engaging someone's experience, asking them what they need, asking them questions that typically I don't think that um, they are asked. When you find someone that's overcompensating, right, that they're they're trying to make everything better. There's a lot that they are pouring onto a person that they may not specifically need in that moment. And I think we can get so wrapped up in caretaking, excessively providing and, and, and trying to, to make something safe that we don't even recognize from the person what it is that they're actually looking for in order to feel safe or to feel confident or to feel like they can go out there and do whatever it is that they need to do. So I do think that you're right. There is a point that oftentimes we feel like because of older generations and how they've responded and the effects that we've noticed in ourselves, we try and do completely opposite. But sometimes trying to do completely opposite is us kind of even, I would say, trying to outrun what's in our nervous system, fear that we could possibly turn out to be like them. And I think one of the biggest things that we've learned is if we've often been misattuned to in some shape or form, the biggest starting point is really starting where that person is, right? And asking them what they need right now, asking them some exploratory questions while, we with, while we're with them and not just taking it upon ourselves to, to coddle, as you said, or to, to make them feel like they're not able to, to process and even come to a conclusion on their own. And then I have another question as well. Sorry, I was taking notes and listening while you guys were <laughs> going into it. Um, here's something that I think I'm, it's a bit selfish, but I'm hoping that the listeners will, you know, also get some value out of it. And especially for those of us who were raised in households that we didn't get to talk about our feelings very much, or even when we're dealing with young kids or teenagers who are going through so many different experiences, especially right now, but they don't know how to articulate their feelings. I know even when you said right now, you know, do I want to know the truth? Instead of, I don't know how to articulate, put words to the experiences that I'm feeling in my body. So what would you like, what advice would you give to a person or to a parent or to a patient as to like, how do you get yourself to a point to be able to do that, to take whatever it is you're feeling and put some sort of language to it so that you can work through it and, and get to that next level or to that next step? Yeah. And I actually hear that uh, a lot, especially when I'm starting off with clients who are so used to being in their heads and not in their bodies. So there are um, three simple steps or, or or questions you can say that I give them, um, even if they are are not, I think, experiencing and sharing what exactly is going on with their bodies, it's totally okay. I usually have them, you know, through different exercises or, or processes, I usually have them just kind of notice or even express to me one thing that might be sticking out for them. 
you know, as they're attuning to their body, it might be, oh, I notice that there's a sensation in my chest, or I notice that it's, you know, just, you know, the right part of my my chest and, and not the other side. And we do small concrete things that way so that it doesn't feel like there is a, a pressure to perform or to have an elaborate answer. Because I think that especially those who are high achieving, they're used to having um, a specific outcomes. So just kind of starting like, starting where they are, like what's, what's something that you notice about your body? What's something that you notice about that sensation? And then I ask them to kind of locate where it is, where, where do you notice it in your body? And then the last thing that I would have them kind of take a look at is what's a, a lingering thought that might be connected to this? Or what do you feel like is playing in the background as you're attuning to your body? And different things come up when I, when I ask them that, what's lingering or what feels like it's in the background? They might say, I don't feel like I'm doing this right. And that's even like content that's important, right? That in order to attune to your body, you feel like you have to do it right. They might say something else, but all of this is important content. It means that they're they're getting, they're, they're starting to get connected to their bodies and they're starting to see the relationship that they have with their bodies. Yeah, I think you really nailed it when you're um when it when you're talking about getting it right. I know that's a constant dialogue for me in my head that I have to, you know, sometimes reflect and intentionally try to overcome is, am I doing this right? Is this the way it's supposed to look? Is it, am I giving the right answer? But in this context, there really isn't a right answer. It's really what is so, and that's it. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Those were like burning in me and I needed to talk to say it. Thank you for answering those questions. Samir, you're gonna have her. You're gonna have her charge us for this. Oh, I'm so let's, let's ease back a little bit. I'm telling you, when we have the truth session, she's gonna come out. <laughs> with her, and she's gonna come, and we're gonna do therapy sessions live with her. <laughs> I'm so enjoying this. Bring me back. Um, you know, as we're talking about this, Ali, I think you um, asked earlier. What are some things that other people can do, like even people who are not of color, who um, who are trying to cope with this pandemic or, or just trying to get more connected to themselves some way, somehow? I think this is something that might help during this pandemic and overall in general. Something that I usually ask folks to, to think about is, you know, what feels out of their control in that exact moment? Um, even in the present, I can think about what feels out of my control. And then the next thing that I typically ask them is, what are your choices? And then the last one is, what can you actively choose? That gives them something tangible to actually work with. Mm-hmm. Rather than getting caught up in the, the loop cycle, that thought cycle of you know what feels out of their control. So it helps them move from a place in their nervous system where they feel helpless to a place where they feel empowered or they feel safe or at ease. That's a great transition for them. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, I you know, you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned about about bringing you back, and it's funny because as you as you were talking, I was thinking about it would be nice to have a conversation about this that delineates the differences that you find between how men process and deal with things and how women process and deal with things. And I really thought about that in the three questions you just asked. It's it's because it's kind of a, a boiled down, a, a better way of saying, okay, what's the issue? How do you feel about it? What can you do about it? And for the things that you can't do about it, how do you let it go? 
kind of thing. So I, I know that's something that I've, I've always wondered or me and my guy friends talk about is, is the difference between the male and the female brain and how we actually process and go through things. And we all experience anxieties, depressions, pressures, fears, all those sorts of things. But like the processing aspect has always been important to me or, or interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So that was great information, Carmel. We definitely thank you for coming on. We're not so different. Please tell our listeners where they can reach you if they want to have a conversation with you, if they need consulting, if they need actual therapy, you know, do you have an Instagram? Just, just give us the rundown on, on how we, how we interact and engage with you. Yeah, of course. Well, anyone who is wanting to connect with me, um, best way to, to reach out to me is through my website. So it is Carmel Allison psychotherapy.com. Um, you can also email me at Carmel at counselingmel.com. And then on social media sites, Carmel Ellison Psychotherapy. And you can find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a great episode. Looking forward to having you back again. Um, you've sent us off with some great tools that we can um, put to use throughout these crazy times and throughout the year. So we really are very appreciative of that. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, please write a review. If you have any questions or feedback or need more information about this episode, please give us email at wnsdifferent at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at wnsdifferent. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next one.